the golden gate. That was the gate that Jesus entered. So we continue our series in the ma- on the Mass, and today we're going to talk about the, the great Thanksgiving, and that's going to be part one, because all I'm going to be able to get to is uh, through the Sanctus, and we'll have to pick up from that um, next week. So this is the ninth teaching in our series, and if you would find these teachings helpful, then I encourage you to go to our website, and I'll be using some words that you might not be familiar with, or you might be familiar with, or you've heard, but if you'd like a written copy of my sermon, it doesn't always come out written, doesn't always come out preached, but nonetheless, you'll get the basic idea. I normally, I I have something that I use that I'll be more happy to send to you on email. So in the Mass, we're picking up um, just after the peace. So as a reminder, the Mass has two parts. It's the ministry of the Word and the ministry of Holy Communion. Now, this is a very different setup than normal. Uh, For the first part of the service, we normally only have the Gospel book there because it's a reminder to all of us that this is the ministry of the Word. And then during the peace, we will put the veiled chalice up there reminding everyone this is the ministry of Holy Communion. So today we're actually picking up in the very beginning of the ministry of Holy Communion. So having heard Jesus as he opened to us the scriptures, we now remember the night in which he was betrayed. And we, like the disciples on on the road to to Emmaus, will recognize him as he makes himself known in the breaking of the bread. So after the peace, we have a brief uh, announcements that are relevant to the life of the community as this reflects the real gathering of our lives, the life of the church and the life of the world and to the offering that is being presented to God. There's a lot going on here. Just that in of itself is a lot to process. The offertory is composed of all those actions that represent the offering of the people. This is when the collection is taken up, an opportunity for the people of God to give a portion of what ultimately all belongs to Him in obedience and worship. The bread and the wine are brought forward from the body of, uh, from the body of Christ. And the collection is taken up and the offering from the body of Christ of bread and wine and money is then presented by the ushers at the altar for Christ to bless. And often the priest is doing that on behalf of Jesus Christ, much like the disciples prepared the elements and the setting for the Passover. So the bread and wine and offerings are all gifts of the ordinary that Jesus makes his extraordinary. So we give from the ordinary and with thankful hearts, and they are transformed by God to be used for His purposes. They become and reveal His grace, His presence, the gospel, healing, reconciliation, Himself. So these gifts of bread and wine and money stand in for our whole entire lives, submitting it and all of us under the Lordship the rule and the reign of King Jesus. It should make us reflect on what we do with our time, how we earn our living, what we obsess about, what we dream about, what we dread, all that is daily bread, all the things we enjoy, and on and on. So all these things we place on the altar. This connection between daily life and the offering of the, of the people at the Eucharist was more vivid in the early days of the church when people would take the bread and wine from their own tables to the church. 
And the deacons would collect the offerings of the people, place enough on the altar to be used in Holy Communion, and save the rest for the distribution to the needy and the poor. So, th- so some of these things that we do s- is symbolic to the history of what has been done all throughout the years. So there needs to be a connection made and remembered more of the holy table, the altar, and the kitchen table. From the kitchen table to the holy table and from the holy table to the kitchen table. This involves worship and mission through hospitality. And I know that Father Justin talked about that last week. Jesus Christ wants our tables, the kitchen table, the dining room table, the conference room table, the table in the cafeteria, and the factory lunchroom to be His table. And when the bread and wine are brought forward by representatives of the people of God at the offering, we are bringing our lives to Him so that He can fill them with His life for His mission purposes through love and truth. And hospitality. Unfortunately, we forget who we are and what we are made for. We crave things of the world. The creation becomes an idol instead of a means of feasting on God's love. And we accumulate things as ends in themselves instead of as a means of growing in our knowledge and love of God. And Jesus comes to restore us to our original calling and vocation. For all Christians, in Him and through Him, we bring the world again to God and creation, beginning with bread and wine, which becomes the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation. Ordinary people become, again, kings and queens of creation to care for God's handiwork. Priests giving thanks in the cosmic Eucharist. And I'm not talking about me as a priest dressed in funny clothes. I'm talking about you, the priesthood of God. Blessing God and feasting on His love in the world. It's very important that the offering be real and meaningful and costly. And that we understand that we are representing these things so that the dignity of human nature and the sanctity of the human calling of praise and adoration can be restored through Jesus Christ. So we're presenting these gifts so that through Christ the world will once again become the sacred means by which God nourishes and intoxicates us with His love and His presence. Now the whole point of sacraments is that ordinary things, everyday things, are being transformed by God into the means of God's self-communication and self-revealing. He wants to transform them so it could be a means of grace. Sacraments are about incarnation, about God being present in and among and through the ordinary, transforming the mundane, fulfilling it, not destroying it. And that's really important. We at All Saints, we embrace the two commandments commanded by Jesus Christ, the two sacraments, and they are what? Baptism and the Lord and Holy Communion. The, yes, Holy Communion. And then we have the five lesser sacraments that we also embrace that have historically been identified throughout the church. The other five Lesser sacraments. We call them lesser sacraments because they are not commanded by Christ. But we also believe, by the way, and I know Father Justin talked about it because I heard the sermon. He talked about how we become a sacrament to the world. We become a means through which Jesus Christ reveals himself to the world. And so we embrace that other things that God wants to take, the mundane like me and you, <laughs> and transform us and make us a means of grace for the world. Now, the deacon or priest sets the table, prepares the altar for Holy Communion, 
And there is a chalice where wine will be poured and a host that sits on a paten, like a plate, and a ciborium, like a bowl, full of smaller wafers. Sometimes we have smaller bottles with wine in them and pixes, which are the small containers of wafers that will get consecrated and will be brought to those who can't make it to our Sunday worship gathering for physical or health reasons. And everything we want to consecrate will be on a square linen called a what? A corporal. So the veiled chalice that gets unveiled as the table is set up has the veil, empty chalice, a pall, uh, a square white linen cloth that's normally stiffened like with cardboard or plastic, a purificator, which is a cloth for wiping the chalice after the, a person consumes the wine, and a burse that's like a purse that we keep extra things in. The chalice is filled with wine from the flagon, which is like a pitcher, and both are fill, are the both that fills the chalice and the flagon will remain on the... Um, let me try that again. And both the filled chalice and flagon with the remainder of the wine sits on the corporal for consecration. So an additional empty chalice will remain on the credence table. That's a table that's set over on the side that has vessels that's used for Holy Communion. And that second um, uh, chalice will be brought up after the consecration to be filled with the consecrated wine that's in the flagon or the pitcher. Now the acolytes, which we probably are most familiar with, are the altar workers. It will bring up two smaller containers that's called cruets, one with extra wine in case it's needed and one with water. And the water and the wine both represent the blood and the water that poured out of the pierced side of Jesus when he hung on the cross. You know, there are some who speaks historically of water as a symbol of the people of God, me and you. And it takes a lot of wine and a little water because we must lose ourselves in Jesus Christ. Now that's something to really think about. Many, many years ago, as I said, uh, there was uh, when we didn't have uh, clean water, uh, we were concerned that it would make people sick, so that's why we had the priest bless it and saying, make this water clean. Often, just before the priest starts the prayer of the great thanksgiving, there will be a brief pause for hand washing. And as a server holds a ball called the Lobobo Bowl, and pours water over the priest's fingers. The priest dries his hands on a small linen towel and proceeds with the service. First, it has functional and practical purposes, and second, it has ceremonial purposes. And for the practical purposes, the priest will wash his hands for the handling of food. Then the ceremonial, symbolic, and prayerful purposes, the priest will ask God to wash not only his hands, but wash um, his whole entire life, his heart as he realizes his unworthiness to stand in this place and ask for the mercy and grace of God to wash him. The ceremony is called the Lobobo, after the opening words of Latin in the version of Psalm 26, and it comes from this verse, I wash my hands in the waters of innocence that I may go around the altar of my God. So all the things that we do, the practices, the things we say, remember, it, it, it comes from rich meaning. And, um, and, and like I said, the, the liturgy is God's words that has been arranged for worship. Now the altar, the holy table has been prepared and we're ready to pray. After the offertory has been collected and the altar been set, we stand to sing the doxology. And the doxology is, means a word of praise and it's directed toward the Holy Trinity. And the, the familiar metrical version was written in the 17th century by an Anglican bishop. Thomas Kent. 
So we call this next movement the Great Thanksgiving. So Eucharist is a Latin word that means thanksgiving. So at this time, we give thanks to God for our creation, redemption, and adoption as the children of God. Work becomes worship through thankful hearts. And bread and wine become the sacrament or a sign of Christ's body and blood. And we give thanks for everything that he has done for us. The Lord be with you is like an Anglican interruption. Everyone's talking and we say, the Lord be with you. And everyone gets silent. And with your spirit. Now, I have a problem using it in that context, even though many of you don't. Um, and and it's, not, it's not because it's wrong. It's because I'd rather focus on the other re- reason that we do it. It's because we're trying to extend the very peace of God and the presence of God with one another. So let's just pretend when it's done the other way, it's for that purpose too. <laughs> the sorsum corda, which means lift up your hearts, represents our self-offering to God. Even as Jesus takes the bread, he takes our hearts to bless them. The Sorsum Court appears in liturgy since at least the 3rd century. Think about that one. Back in the 200s, they used the Sorsum Court as part of worship. The The heart in the language of the Bible is not an organ for pumping blood. It is the very center of a human person. The heart is the essence of human identity. And because Jesus has identified with us, we can identify with him. So God has sacrificed himself for us so that we can lift up our hearts to him. He's come down to us so that we may ascend with him. And certainly the old world, the old order, the world that is not the kingdom of God is never totally left behind. But nevertheless, in the Eucharist, time opens into eternity and we experience a taste of heaven now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come now, Lord Jesus. So we're having a taste of what is to come now. In a lot of different ways, but especially in the sacrament of Holy Communion. After this is what we call the proper preface, which is assigned according to the day or even the season of the church year. And so right after the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, and the people respond, it is right to give Him thanks and praise. Now, in the the preface for the day... The priest reminds the congregation, please hear this. One of the many reasons why it is right to give God thanks and praise. He tells us, he reminds us why it is proper, why it is right. Now let me give give you a couple examples. There's a whole list of examples we could use. It's in the Book of Common Prayer. On the Lord's Day, we we could say, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death in the grave, and by his glorious resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. Now, isn't that a reason why we need to give thanks and and praise? Uh, Here's another one. If you are, uh, for you are the source of life and light, and you made us in your image and called us into new life in Jesus Christ our Lord. An epiphany. You're going to hear in just a few minutes. I'm going to say, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who took our mortal flesh to reveal his glory that he might bring us out of darkness and into his own glorious light. During Holy Week, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who for our sins was lifted high upon the cross, that he might draw the whole world to himself, who by his suffering and death became the author of eternal salvation for all who put their trust in him. I can keep going on and on, but I think you get it. 
for the Feast of the Apostles and Ordinations and Baptism and the Burial of the Dead, and it just keeps on and on. There's all kinds of options where we stop, we pause, we give thanks and praise to Almighty God. I repeat, the proper preface gives us one of many reasons why it is right to give God thanks and praise. So by this changing use of these prefaces, different themes and blessings of the faith are brought to the attention of the congregation. This is yet another protection from the tendency of priests, preachers, teachers, and congregations to become fixated on one aspect of the faith to the exclusion of others. In other words, we all have a tendency to want to fixate on certain things in the church. And before I became an Anglican, well, actually, I started using the lectionary even before I became an Anglican, but before I started using the lectionary, I had my pet peeves that I like to talk about a lot. But in following the lectionary, I can't focus on all my pet peeves because I'm being disciplined to preach on the Word of God and the whole counsel of the Word of God. So it disciplines us. It disciplines us as a church. Have you ever been to churches that are not Anglican that want to talk about eschatology all the time or the end times or want to talk about the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit or whatever it is? You you just get fixated. So this disciplines us. So once the great Thanksgiving prayer has begun, I, I believe the less one uses the prayer book, the better. Now, that's just my opinion. You don't agree with me? That's okay. Better to look at the altar and listen keenly to words and memorize the few responses during this time. Yet there can be no one style of praying the Eucharist that will work for all of us, as some are greatly helped and some are distracted by following word for word in the service booklet or the prayer book during this particular time. In June, the Book of Common Prayer 2019 will be released in the Anglican Church in North America, and there is a very strong chance that we are going to be using the Book of Common Prayer 2019 instead of a service, service booklet. And when it comes time for things like the offertory sentence or proper preface, for example, I would encourage you not to worry and turn all the way over there. You know why? Because by the time you turn there, I'm going to be done with it. (laughs) That's why at times you just close your eyes and you enter into worship and then know where to to pick back up. But it's up to you. Let the priest do the hard work of flipping back and forth, okay? So it's just something to think about. The proper preface is followed by the Sanctus and Benedictus. Now, these are big words. I'm going to explain what they mean. There are two hymns that are either sung or said together. Uh, the Sanctus is holy, holy, holy. Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And, and then the Benedictus part is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, the Sanctus, which means holy, is sung unceasingly before the presence of God in heaven, according to John in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. This is a song the prophet Isaiah heard when in a time in which there were no visions and God seemed very far away, the prophet went into the temple to pray and he had a vision of Almighty God. And the words tell us that we are approaching the center of the mystery of the Eucharist. We're moving more intimately into the presence of God. God himself is making himself known. Heaven and earth are full of the glory of God. So when we rightly give thanks and praise and worship God, we are not alone. We are united as a congregation to be sure, but we are also part of a greater gathering. 
We're united with the angels and archangels and the company of heaven, those living and those faithfully dead. It is normative at this time in the service to show reverence at this point and bow and say, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might. If it's not your thing, you don't do that. There's no shame in that. I'm just saying it's normative, and a lot of people do that because it's, God is holy, and so we would, we would naturally and normally bow, or some would, and it's okay if you don't. Now, the Benedictus is next, and it originates with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, verse 9. We recognize him as the promised Savior of the world, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's normative as Anglicans to cross themselves at this particular point. We've already talked more in depth about crossing ourselves earlier in the series, and I'm not going to go back and repeat all those, but I'm going to talk about one aspect. There are many things going on when people cross themselves. However, many Anglicans make the sign of the cross as a tangible way to mark ourselves as belonging to Jesus Christ. It is a sign of identification. So it's a profession of faith and even a sign that we are setting ourselves or even something or someone else apart for God in this moment. It's a physical prayer. It's not a superstitious expression. That's something important to realize. And if you cross yourself when you make a touchdown, you should cross yourself when you drop the ball. It's not superstitious. You cross yourself in the good times of life, and you cross yourself in the bad times of life. There are times in the Eucharistic prayer that the meaning is so rich and so full that some gesture is, seems to be called forth from the depths of the human heart. And you don't know what to say, what to do. And in some traditions they say, hallelujah, or they say, praise God. And others just bow, and others genuflect, others get on their knees, others weep. There's all kinds of responses to that when we, our hearts become overwhelmed with the presence of God and we are thankful for the wonderful things He does for us. That's why you see people around the room doing different things. Our Father Charles, he crosses himself three times, you know? <laughs> or some genuflect, some bow, some kneel. There's all kinds of proper responses in times like this. They're not superstitious. And some people want to call them the religious trappings. I want to remind you that going to a church that doesn't have a liturgy in the way that we know it. All churches have liturgy. They all have a way of worshiping. But standing and singing for 45 minutes could be just as much of a trapping and religious meaninglessness. Is that right? than anything else we do. If our hearts are not connected to God and it's not coming forth with meaning in the things that we pray, then it's, it could be a religious trapping. We don't just do these outward expressions just because it's the right thing to do. We do it because it's, it's coming from the heart and it's, through, it's, it's a right way of responding and it's coming from the heart of expression and worship. Does that make sense? So yes, it could become a religious trapping, but so can every other church expression. And that's important for us to remember. In the 4th century, Cyril of Jerusalem wrote, Let us not be ashamed to profess the crucified one. Let us continually seal our forehead with our fingers. Let us make the sign of cross on everything. That is why every time I walk into a plane... (laughs) 
as I'm crossing that threshold, I make a sign of the cross on the outside of that plane, and I say, God, keep this thing up in the air. And may it only come down exactly when it's supposed to. (laughs) You think I'm joking. I'm not. The second century, second century, the hundreds, Tertullian said this, at every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at the table, when we light the lamps, when on the couch, on a seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace the sign upon our forehead. The Holy Eucharist is full of meaning. It's my hope and my prayer that we will all learn and grow in our understanding and become alive in our worship as we understand deeply what is happening and why we do the things we do. For some, it might be religious trappings, meaningless rituals, and for others, it is a full, it's full of meaning sets our hearts on fire, and we experience Emmanuel in the most intimate and powerful way. As the scriptures are read and proclaimed, our hearts burn within us, and in the breaking of bread, Jesus Christ makes himself known, and he feeds us. And God's people said,